Good evening, everyone, and thank you, David. Really helpful. Thank you, Fiona. Thank you, Robert. Again, have one of those feelings that I kind of don't need to say an awful lot more. And if I'm perfectly honest, given what I'm about to have to look at, I really wish I hadn't have to say anything more. But if you were here this morning, there is going to be a definite kind of link between uh, now and earlier, at least certainly in the first half of what I want to share. If you weren't here at 10.30, then that's no problem, because in a sense, hopefully this will stand alone. But you know, in various parts of the New Testament, you come across a number of songs. This time three years ago, just before Christmas 2008, we spent four Sunday mornings listening to four songs that were sung at the very first Christmas, all recorded in the book of Luke. And in fact, all recorded in the first two chapters of the book of Luke. Uh, We listened to the Magnificat, sung by Mary, Benedictus, sung by Zechariah, Gloria, sung by the angels, and then that one I can't pronounce, sung by Simeon. And those were, and and they still are, great songs, and they continue to be sung in in various forms, not just at Christmas, but right throughout the year in churches and, and in other settings. But in terms of where to look for another great collection of songs, well I suggest you do need to turn to the very last book of the Bible, which has been described, I I discovered, as the greatest book of worship and of worship songs in the entire New Testament. Now that surprises some people because generally whenever people think of revelation, they don't normally think of worship and songs. They generally think of, well, you fill in the blanks, whatever it is that you think of when you think of Revelation. But when you read Revelation as a whole, which after all is the way we are meant to read it, you discover that it's punctuated by songs. Songs that have and are being sung in heaven, lots of them. Lots of them. And as I said, if you were here this morning, we reflected on a few of them from chapters 4 and 5. And again, down through the years, the church has grabbed a number of these Revelation songs and kept singing them. If you like, the church has joined its voice to the heavenly chorus. And so, for example, many of you will know that some of the greatest pieces in Handel's Messiah are actually drawn from the book of Revelation. Who can give me a couple of examples of pieces that are drawn from Revelation from Handel's Messiah? Oh, yeah. Amen. <laughs> exactly. Thank you, Dorothea. Anything else? There's also, uh, I understand, Worthy is the Lamb that closes that work. I'm looking to those in the know, and a few of you are nodding. But this evening uh, in our journey right through the Bible in a year, we've come to Revelation chapters 19 and 20 and at the beginning of chapter 19 you actually come to the very last set of songs that are in that book now for some of you who know your bibles and i'm really nervous about tonight if i'm honest I'm going to say, but for some of you who know your bibles mention of revelation chapters 19 and 20 may spark certain thoughts Because one of those is the most debated chapter in the entire book. And that's mainly because it contains reference to a thousand years. 
which has created all sorts of discussion. Lots of you are smiling at me. Uh, All sorts of discussion and debate and sadly sometimes division regarding different perspectives on this millennium period. And so some people will want to know if you're pre or post or a. And if some of those terms mean nothing to some of you, that's okay. But for some it will mean something. Well, I need to say right up front, I'm not going there. (laughs) Uh, I don't want to. I actually don't think I have to. Nor do I necessarily need to. But I do want us to worship. And I do, as I invited us all this morning, I want us to sing. And so, if you have a Bible, can you please turn to Revelation 19? It's page 1247 in the Pew Bibles. Now, just to give you some background, although again, and I love the fact some of you are just, you're with me, you can tell you're just smiling at me, which is great. Just keep smiling the whole way through, no matter what I say, can you just keep smiling? But just to give you some background, although trying to do this is really tricky, because we're breaking into John's story and John's vision at this point. I mean, we were in chapters 4 and 5 this morning. We're just jumping a whole pile of chapters, and we're now in 19. And so I'm only going to be able to mention certain things by way of background info without going into any real detail. But in chapter 18, flick back, just have a look, scan down it. But what you do read there is, the prostitute has been judged and condemned. The glossy, glitzy world of Babylon has been overthrown. That great city that speaks of or symbolizes humanity living apart from God, adrift, doing their own thing. That city whose sins are many. In respect to herself, she's been sensuous, self-centered, self-secure. In respect to the world, she has seduced. She has intoxicated with her adulterous idolatry. She's led many people away from God. In respect to the saints, she has killed them. Babylon, this anti-God place, has tried to mess with the purposes of God. And although at times that she seems to be really successful, her time is up. God finally brings justice. Babylon goes up in smoke forever. Babylon, you see, used to think she was eternal, if you look at Isaiah 47. Turns out the only eternal thing about her is her judgment. Babylon tried to ruin God's earth, his creation. Now God will ruin her. And so at the beginning of chapter 19, a whole multitude break in the song. So let's read the first three verses. I'm going I'm to ask you to stand. We're go- well, maybe up and down quite a lot. That's mainly just to keep you with me. So let's stand together for these three verses. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting. Now remember, we're on the back of chapter 18. Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgment. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again, they shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Grab a seat. And you'll notice, please keep looking there, after they stop 
this great multitude, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, which we thought about this morning, what do they do? They fall down again in worship and they add their own lyrics to this song. And here's what they say. Amen. Hallelujah. What does hallelujah mean? Praise God. It's a word we're so familiar with. Often found in the Old Testament, particularly in the Psalms, but you know in the New Testament, this is the only chapter you find it. Only chapter in the entire New Testament. And it appears four times, verses 1, 3, 4, and 6. Clearly this is a key moment. Something worth celebrating. But now with the whore gone, it's time for the bride to step forward. There's going to be a wedding. Listen to verses 5 to 8. Let's stand again. Then... A voice from the throne saying, then came a voice from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both small and great. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean was given to her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Grab a seat. And who is that bride? Who is that bride? It's us. It's the church. Dressed beautifully, stunningly, decked out in fine linen. Which stands for, and this time we don't have to like work out what it stands for. God's word tells us what it stands for. It stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Our own righteous acts? Possibly. And the righteous acts, primarily the righteous acts that God has done on our behalf in Christ. And so we're ready. The church is ready. Appropriately addressed for the ultimate wedding to the ultimate bridegroom. Here we have the culmination of history. This is the wedding of the Lamb of Christ to his bride, the church. And then an angel speaks up. Verse 9, just keep your seats. Then the angel said to me, Write, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. Now, there is a little confusion here. Because it seems that John is using his imagery quite freely enough to allow the church to be both the bride and the invited guests. So as someone has said, perhaps we should state that the church is the bride and the individual believers who of course comprise the church are the wedding guests. But the point is this. There is a real and definite sense of fulfillment here. This is what the church has been waiting for, longing for a deeper level of intimacy with Jesus, where we will be together forever, eternally united without any possibility of breakdown or separation. Whenever the sad and sorry effects of sin and human rebellion and wickedness and pride and arrogance, will they have run their course? This is a new day, a forever defining, redefining day has finally come. And on seeing this, and on hearing this, John gets so excited. But look what he does. He gets so excited, he begins to worship the angel. He momentarily forgets that the angel is simply a messenger. He's not the originator of the message. 
Let's read verse 10. At this I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, don't do it. I'm a fellow servant with you and with your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. John actually repeats this mistake again. Again, for those who know your Bibles, chapter 22, don't need to look it up. But in verse 8 of chapter 22, John does exactly the same thing. He worships an angel. And I find this fascinating because of nothing else, it reminds us of just how easily it is to fall into idolatry. I mean, if John, in the light of what is going on in his life and in his vision, if he can mess up and if he can begin worshipping that which is not God... It kind of encourages us about the challenge we all face in battling this temptation. And so the angel declares in verse 10 of chapter 19 and in verse 8 of chapter 22, Listen, John, worship God. Revelation is a great book of worship. As I said this morning, it actually issues a call to us. It issues an invitation to us to join heaven's songs. Because we were creatures created for this purpose. And so it's vital again tonight that if you hear nothing else, just hear the angel's words. Worship God. Other things will compete for our worship. They do every moment of every day. But only God, the creator God, who is enthroned in heaven, and only the Lamb who was slain for us, they are the only ones who are truly worthy of our worship. And so the angel encourages John to respond to what he's hearing by what? By worshipping God. And ultimately worship is a response. It's a response to who God is. It's a response to what God has done. And in Revelation, it's always, always a response to what people, creatures, elders are discovering about God. It's always a response to the character and the deeds of God. And as you read through this book, as I say, time and time again, you come up to these expressions of worship which are people's response. Here are just some of them. What I'd like us to do, I'd like you to join with me in saying these together because these are phrases to grab hold of and use privately and use publicly as we respond to what we discover about God in worship. So let's say these words together. You are worthy, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. You see, in light of what John discovers regarding our future, regarding the church's future, he's told, worship God. And we are invited to do the same. Okay, let's continue with Revelation 19. We'll pick it up at verse 11. And let's stand as we read to the end of the chapter. I do apologize for this, but I just, I hope you can forgive me. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. 
He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has his this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals and mighty men and of horses and their riders and the flesh of all people free and slaves small and great then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider and the horse and his army but the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf and with these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image the two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulphur The rest of them were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider and the horse. And all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. In this section of the vision which goes here and on into chapter 20, we come across and we read about the demise. There's lots of things in there I know. But we read about the demise of three evil forces that work in our cosmos, in our world, that are vehemently opposed to God. And Revelation identifies them symbolically as the dragon, and as the monster, or as the beast, and as the false prophet. And that the root of evil is the dragon, who, if you look over at verse 2 of chapter 20, is clearly identified as the devil, Satan, the ancient serpent. But here in the second half of chapter 19, it's the beast, it's the monster and the false prophet who are dealt with decisively to start with. They are those who have been employed by the dragon as his agents. Now, we could get totally lost here and easily confused even more so than we maybe are already. And we could spend quite some time trying to identify, well, who this monster and who this false prophet symbolized for the first century readers and who do they symbolize for subsequent readers, including us. And again, I'm not going there. The key issue for me is that in this chapter and through the next in chapter 20, we read about what God is going to do about evil once and for all and forever. Its days, its influence, its impact are limited. The monster, the beast, the false prophet, the dragon, they will be defeated. Never again to wreak havoc. Never again to wreck lives. Never again to attempt to thwart the purposes of God. And John is given a vision of their final doom. And here in chapter 19 we discover how they're defeated. And who defeats them. And it's Jesus, who's portrayed as a conquering warrior and hero. And if you look at chapter 19, in those verses we read together, his appearance is striking. He's on a white horse. And again, for first century readers, this was a powerful image. 
because white horses were very definitely signs and symbols of victory and triumph. His eyes were like blazing fire, it says. He misses nothing, laser-like vision. He's crowned, it says, with many crowns, signifying that he's king over all kingdoms, all powers, all authorities, all realms. And finally, his robe is dipped in blood. Whose blood? Probably the blood of his enemies. And so he's a triumphant warrior king. But in addition to his appearance, he's also identified by these three names. And they clarify his identity and his status. He's faithful and true according to verse 11. He's the word of God according to verse 13. And he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh. In verse 16. King of kings. Lord of lords. And that first name, faithful and true, takes us back to, if you were here last Sunday evening, it takes us back to that reading in Revelation chapter 3, whenever writing to the church at Laodicea, he is described as the faithful and true witness. In other words, he sees all. He knows all. And he speaks truth. And according to John, what does that mean at the end of verse 11? It means he's the only one who can judge. And he's the only one who will judge justly. We live in a world where sometimes the innocent are condemned, the guilty are set free. But when Jesus judges, we can be sure he's going to get it right. And then that second name, that second title, Word of God, echoes of the first chapter of John's Gospel. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The Word became flesh, dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. And so this rider on the white horse is the Word of God. It is Jesus. And then finally, he's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's above all. No one can compare to him. Even the mightiest will bow before him. Every earthly king and Lord Jesus is king over all. And so although, like many others, we might find it quite a stretch to get our heads around this graphic image of the rider and the white horse, and many people have. The picture of Jesus we find here is worth noting and celebrating. Jesus is mighty. He is strong. He is all-knowing. He judges rightly. He defeats his enemies. This is the Lamb who laid down his life for you and me. But one day he will return as the majestic, exalted, and powerful warrior king. And he will take out, he will defeat evil once and for all. And so as we read on, we discover, and look at verse 20, we discover that this beast, this monster, the false prophet, they're captured. They're thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur. It seems evil is losing its grip. But the dragon is still at large. Or so it seems, but not for long. Because now we're into chapter 20 and we discover that he eventually ends up in the same destination. That having been, and and this is where this gets so difficult, but having been bound for a period of time referred to as a thousand years in the abyss, he's then set free for a short time, but he's like a boxer back on his feet before the final knockout blow. And according to John's vision, it's about to strike. Because in verse 10 of chapter 20, you read that the devil is also eventually thrown into this lake of fire and sulfur. Now, in times of order, times of timing or chronology, I honestly don't know. And to be dogmatic about these things is so dangerous and so unwise. But what I do know 
is that God has done, is doing, and will do something about evil. He's dealt with it. And he's dealing with it. You see, based on God's word, we see three major stages in how God deals with Satan. He's cursed him. He's defeated him. And he will remove him completely. Right back in the Garden of Eden, God cursed Satan. And he conspired him to a dead end. I put enmity between you and the woman, said God, to the ancient serpent. And between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head. And you will strike his heel. And God would ensure that a son was born who would crush Satan. Incredibly, it turned out to be God's own son. And God, or Satan, would try to derail God's uh, purposes. He would try to prevent that son ever being born. But we discover that as we engage with the big story as we have been doing, that at the first Christmas, that son was born. And again, evil did its worst. Even from the word go, think Herod. Evil did its worst. Tried throughout his son's life. And it reached an incredible intensity as humanity rejected God's son and killed him instead. And God allowed it. But in doing so, God broke the back of evil. He defeated Satan at the cross. And because death could not hold Jesus, he now holds, and this, this is mental, but he now holds the keys of death and Hades. Roy drew our attention to that last Sunday morning when he read, I am the living one, says Jesus. I was dead. Behold, I am alive forevermore, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. In other words, Satan is a defeated foe. He is a defeated enemy, but he still prowls around. He still aims to deceive and distort. And so there is this third stage of God's dealings with Satan, where he will remove him completely. And that's where Revelation 20 comes in, where it says that God will cast him into the lake of fire and sulfur. That is his final destiny. Now, why does it work like that? Why these three stages? Why the gap of time between them all? That's God's business. That's God's business. And then in the final verses of this chapter, we come to judgment. Verses 11 to 15, when we need to finish. When ultimately, every person will have to face God. And for some that will be terrifying. For others, glorious. And C.S. Lewis, who have quoted quite a bit today, put it like this. In the end, that face, which is the delight or the terror of the universe, must be turned upon each of us, either with one expression or with the other either conferring glory inexpressible or inflicting shame that can never be cured or diagnosed or disguised 
You see, at this point, according to this vision, the books will be opened. Lives will be judged. And those who belong to God, the church, his bride, well, their destiny, as you read on, is the new heaven and the new earth, the new Jerusalem. For those who don't belong to God, then their destiny is the lake of fire, that place of permanent removal from God's presence. And I'm, it's, it's sobering and I, I find it really uncomfortable if I'm honest to preach this stuff. And yet although some people think of Revelation as a book full of judgment, it's also a book that's full of the gospel of grace. Because at the end of the book, you find this amazing invitation. And this is us finished, in a sense, with Revelation this evening. The Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him who hears say, come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. Whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. So said earlier, the bride is the church. It's made up of those who have taken the free gift of the water of life. And together with the Spirit of God, we, the church, invite those who are thirsty for life with God, made possible through Jesus to come and drink and so if you long for your name to be written in that book of life that's referred to here then I and we invite you to bow your knee now to worship your creator to worship the lamb who was slain to rescue you from the second death and from hell And to accept the one who one day will return as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Who will return forever defeating evil and claiming the bride for himself. And it's because many of us are longing for that. That we can join together and we can sing our closing song. Praise my soul, the King of Heaven, to his feet. Tribute bring.